good to be with you. If you don't know me, my name's Brad. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, I'd love to meet you if we don't know each other. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys noticed, but a lot of good things are happening around us. Got a sign out front. Um, got that passed through Landmarks, uh, and that's always good when that happens. And so we've got a couple more that'll be going on the building. And, uh, you know, that sign, I was pretty excited to invest a little bit of money in a permanent sign. Uh, for a couple of reasons, I didn't want a banner in the yard that just said, hey, we're here today and gone tomorrow. And um, I also wanted to communicate to this community that there's a, there's a church that's, that's rooted here that, that cares about you. Like, there, there's a place where a body of believers show up on a weekly basis, and it's a sacred space where they meet God. And, and our hope and our prayer is that, like, doesn't stop here, right? That we don't just meet God in these walls, but that mission happens outside of these walls. And so, uh, join our elder team in praying for this community, for specifically for Evergreen Historical District. Because from my understanding, the cars used to be parked on Galloway, all the way down toward the zoo, and all the way down toward Crosstown. And that's no longer the case. And that means this is a community that needs the gospel of Jesus. They need the hope and the joy and the peace of Jesus Christ. So join us in, in praying for this community. Uh, if you would, take out a Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Have you noticed uh, within your families that there are some stories that do not get told until you become an adult? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like there's some stories that are major family stories that you just don't hear about until you're an adult. And then you go, whoa, that's kind of weird. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's the story we're studying this morning. There are some stories that for all the right reasons are not included in Sunday school. I promise you did not hear this story in Sunday school. If you did, you went to a very strange Sunday school. This story, I'm going to go ahead and add a disclaimer. If you're a parent and you have children in the room, I'm giving you a little bit of homework. Because your kids are going to have some questions, okay? And so, here's a disclaimer. If your kids are like middle school, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade... You need to be talking about all this stuff already. Like this passage is R-rated. And you need to be having these kind of conversations with your kids at home because they're having them. They're learning all the answers to their questions either through technology or through their friends at school. And believe me, you don't want them to be learning answers through either of those means. Okay? You want to be having these conversations. Now... If you have, so kids are second grade and, and younger, they're downstairs. So third, fourth, fifth grade. Uh, the, my disclaimer is that on a day like today, there's probably going to be some questions that you need to answer and probably some questions that you don't need to answer. I, I loved uh, Corey Ten Boom in the hiding place. I loved her father's general response to her when she asked a question that was inappropriate for her age. And they were on a train ride. And he said, I want you to try to pick up my luggage. And she said, I can't pick up your heavy suitcase. 
And he said, that's the nature of the question you have asked. It's too heavy for you to carry at this young age. But there will be a time where you will come to understand. And so that, that may be the nature of today for some second or third, fourth, fifth graders. Uh, as we look at this passage, we're studying a story about lust and evil, conniving, lying, rape, incest, murder. Literally just shameful godlessness. God's never mentioned in this passage. And so the question would be, why even read, much less study, such a godless story? And the answer is, because we live in a lukewarm what I would describe as a leftover cultural Christianity that we live in here in the South, in the old Bible Belt, where the general attitude of most religious people is, I can live a godless life all week long and, and come back to Him on Sunday and occasionally perform some kind of religious ritual that kind of just takes care of everything. God will wave His magic wand of grace over my life and my family's life and all my sin will be forgiven, and everyone will be safe and prosperous, and there will be no consequences. And this story tells us that there could not be anything further from the truth. The key principle, or the big idea, of 2 Samuel 13, Paul gives it to us in Galatians, in chapter 6, in verse 7. It's a principle he gives us, it's a principle for all of life. He says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here's why this is so important. We live in a society that believes and teaches that you can make and control your own destiny. That you are the commander of your destiny. And many people have lived lives in such a way that they would say, well, just look at the evidence of my life. Look at how I commanded my destiny. And this is simply not true. The Bible says we will reap what we sow. It's not instantaneous. There may even be long periods of simple pleasure when it seems that the wicked are prospering. But God's promise is that we will reap what we sow. And in the passage we see today... David is unfortunately beginning the process of reaping what he has sown. Let's look at a really hard text, beginning 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 14. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnon, David's son, loved her. So there's two sons involved here. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and 
Give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. But when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, who would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel? Now therefore, please speak to the king. For he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than her. He violated her. And lay with her. The first principle that we see in this godless story. Is that forgiveness does not release you from consequences. Forgiveness does not release you from consequences. We have to understand the larger story that is at work here in order to understand this principle. This story follows immediately after the story of David and Bathsheba, in which David lusts after a woman, has her brought to him, much as Amnon did, while he waits in his bedroom and then sleeps with the woman, conceiving a child, all while her righteous husband is out fighting for Israel. David goes on and he has... Bathsheba's righteous husband Uriah, David has him killed and he tries to cover up his sin. And the prophet Nathan comes and rebukes David and then prophesies these horrible words. There's three different prophecies that Nathan speaks over David's life. The first one comes in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 10. I've got these listed for you I think. The sword shall never depart from your house. I want to emphasize something. Never. The second, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Read 2 Samuel chapter 16. And what you come to discover is that the neighbor who will lie... With David's wives is his very son, Absalom. Finally, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Most of the time when we hear Nathan's rebuke, That's the one that seems to be the strongest to us. Because it's immediate. And then we follow along in the passage and the child dies and David fasts. And then his men come to him and he ends his fast and he says, What more can I do now that the child is dead? 
and we kind of breathe a sigh of relief and we go, that was horrible. And this child died for David's sin, but at least that is over. Never. The Bible says never. That the sword will never depart from your house, David. That as a result of your sin, your very sons are going to lie with your wives. Do you see the consequences? When we meet God in confession and when we seek forgiveness, here's the results of meeting God and confessing our sin and seeking His forgiveness. Listen to me carefully. He doesn't kill us. That's what, go back to the prophecy. Go, go back to what Nathan says. Uh, look, at, look at what he says in the second verse. He says, in the last one, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's, that's what we get. That's the forgiveness that's offered to us. God says, hey, I'll remember your sin no more, and because of that, you don't have to die. He doesn't kill us. We're forgiven, but he chooses consequences for us that fit the crime and the individual, and we're left to suffer and to learn. That's a harsh truth, isn't it? Isn't that what we do if we're good parents with our own kids? That we say, I forgive you. That was a really immature thing that you did. And now, because I love you, I'm going to give you some consequences. And all good consequences should involve some type of suffering. Otherwise, they're not consequences. And so God gives us consequences in order that he might draw us back to himself. And that's a very hard truth. And we're seeing those consequences that David is facing in his own family. Listen, there's two kinds of trouble that we face. There's trouble from without and there's trouble from within in our families. So when we have trouble from without, uh, a tree may fall in our house or our house may burn down or someone in our family uh, may have cancer. Those are troubles from without. And typically, when those type of troubles in our families, they oftentimes have a way of drawing us closer together. And then there's trouble from within. And David is facing a kind of trouble from within in which a family member has gone astray and he's bringing shame and dishonor on his family and those kind of troubles tend to tear families apart. This story gets off to a completely rocky start from the beginning. If you look at verse 1, go back and look at like verse 1 and verse 2. If you start to draw David's family tree... And you chose a tree that you were going to use to resemble it. I'd use kudzu. You can't tell who's married to who. And which son and daughter goes with which wife. David has done what God has commanded him not to do. And he has gone out. And he has married multiple wives. And now he is reaping the results of this. He has so many wives we can't even keep up with exactly who's who. But we know that he has a son named Absalom. And Absalom has a beautiful sister named Tamar. And then there's another son by another wife who's named Amnon. And in verse 1, we quickly see that the love Amnon had for his half-sister Tamar wasn't love at all. 
It was sin-cursed sexual infatuation. It was lust, pure lust, not love. Gordon Ketty writes, I've got this quote for you, the ingredients of a genuine love are altogether lacking. There's no self-giving commitment, no seeking of the other's highest good, no sensitive devotion, not even a hint of romance. There is only naked physical lust and an utterly self-centered disregard for Tamar's personal integrity, welfare, and blessedness. Amnon is consumed not by what he could do for her, but by what he wanted desperately to do to her. And this is a society in which we live. If you listen to almost any song on the radio, um, if you watch music videos, it's all about what someone wants to do to someone. We have completely lost a biblical definition of love. Bodie Bauckham years ago gave this definition of love and it's always stuck with me and I've taken it to everyone that I've done premarital counseling with and oftentimes in marriage counseling. He says that biblical love is an act of the will. I've got it on, uh, on the screen for you. Biblical love is an act of the will. It is accompanied by emotion. And it leads to action on behalf of its object. It should just be the next slide. You just arrow over. Okay, love is an act of the will. That means that I don't fall in love and I don't fall out of love. That I choose love. It's an act of the will. It is accompanied by emotion. Which means that it doesn't lead me. Amnon was completely led by his lust and by his emotion. Love is an act of the will. It is accompanied by emotion. And most importantly, it leads to action on behalf of its object. Meaning, if it leads to action on behalf of its object, I'm going to care first and foremost for the person that I love more than I care for myself. We see none of that. Here in Amnon's life. None of it. We live in a society. That has completely lost. The definition of biblical love. And what's so important for us. As followers of Jesus. Is we must learn. To guard our hearts. That's what the writer in Proverbs 4 would say. Proverbs 4 verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. That we should guard our hearts. And then he goes on to tell us how to do that. He says, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Amnon did none of this. And he allowed himself to grow sick with lust. Don't miss that. Our hearts were created to pursue and to desire and to worship. And if we have no hope of getting what we worship, we will find ourselves sick. And Amnon has found himself in a place where he has said, if I can have Tamar, I will be ultimately happy. And he has made himself physically sick. 
because he can't have what he desires. Consider for a moment all the women in the land that Amnon could have married. All the women. But instead, he set his heart on destruction. He set his heart on the one thing that God said, don't do this. Back in Leviticus, God had said, don't marry your sister. Now, we pick up and we see that Jonadab is a new character who's introduced. It seems that he is a first cousin to Amnon. And he's said to be crafty. Kind of like an evil politician. He concocts this creative plan for Amnon to fake sickness before David the king. And to request that Tamar come and cook and care for him while he is ill. And we pick up with a story in verse 15. And the story uh, grows even sadder. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up. Go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. The second principle that we see from this godless story is that idolatry promises to satisfy, but leaves you empty and angry. Idolatry promises to satisfy, but it leaves us empty and angry. The real problem with this story And with our culture today, is that we really don't abhor this story that much. We don't abhor this story nearly enough. Because we don't abhor sin that much. In fact, for many in our society today, we flirt with it. We're spectators doing slow drive-bys in the entertainment that we view and expose ourselves to. We see perversions like this on a regular basis and we just become dull to it. And before you know it, we're so unholy, we find it difficult to genuinely hate sin. We no longer are shocked by sin's grossness. Instead, we find ourselves becoming curious. Tamar is the only character... Of all the four characters. This story is really about Absalom. If you read it all the way through. If you go back to verse 1. And you want to know how to interpret a story like this. Be very careful that you do a character study. Of stories and try to base all the principles off the characters. Most of the time the meaning of the story. Is not about the characters. Okay, I'm not saying that it's wrong to preach a story on the life of David. But you know. The story of David and Goliath. Is not be like David and go slay your giants. That's not what the story of David and Goliath is about. The story of David and Goliath is David faced his fear, and when he faced his fear, he went to God, and God was faithful to say, I'll I'll walk with you through this, even as you persevere through your fear, and and God showed him, yes, that that I'll use you to kill giants. But it's a story about God. It's not about David. It's about the greater David who would come, Jesus. And in this same way, we can look, there's four characters here. But read verse 1 and you understand the character this story is mainly about. Now Absalom, David's son, had to be... This is a story about Absalom. 
and the evil that we're going to see him play out over the next few chapters. But within this story, as we look at it, Tamar is the only character in this story with a shred of integrity. She gives us the true perspective on this crime in verse 12. She says, do not do this outrageous thing. Literally in the Hebrew, do not do this wicked thing. She says in verse 13, speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. Surely this must have been a desperate attempt to find someone who would intervene on her behalf. Can't, we can't believe that David would say, sure, Amnon, you can have your sister Tamar. She's looking for some desperate way out before this wicked thing is done. And I just want to make this statement as we read this story that all violence against women is godless. For centuries, men have preyed on women. Even this last week, we see uh, a court case of high-profile male figures being held accountable by their victims. The Weinstein case is playing out. We're seeing Harvey Weinstein being held accountable by his victims. Tamar doesn't have that opportunity. Instead, she's thrown out of Amnon's presence. In verse 17, he letter, literally says, Get this out of here. He is now seeing her as an object to be discarded. And she's thrown out. Don't miss the picture in how she leaves. She puts ashes on her head. Maybe the very ashes that she had just used to bake bread for her brother Amnon. We don't know. She puts ashes on her head. She rips her long robe and she lays her hands on her head and walks out into the public wailing, crying. In no way does she try to hide the sin that's been done to her. She walks out in public, in her shame. She is a disheveled mess. She was beautiful without and within. And now she has been violated and her beauty seems to have vanished. There's a great deal that we can learn from Amnon's sin. That we can learn. This story is, the apple doesn't fall nearly as far from the tree as we would hope. I'm not saying you're sleeping with your sister. The first thing that we can learn is that idolatry does not satisfy. Instead, idols leave us more empty and angry than we were before we pursued them. Darcy Stenke recounts in her memoir how she, the daughter of a Lutheran minister, left her Christian profession, so she no longer professed to be a Christian, and she moved to New York City. She entered a life of club hopping, sexual obsession. She wrote several novels, and she continued, however, to be extremely restless and unfulfilled. In the middle of her memoir, she quotes from Simon Veil, and to summarize the main issue in her life, this is the quote from Simon Veil. One has only the choice between God and idolatry. If one denies God, one is worshipping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such. But in fact, though unknown to oneself, imagining the attributes of divinity in them. What Simon Vale is saying is that our hearts were made to worship. 
And when we put our hope and our desire in something, if it's not in God, then we enter into the belief and we give that created thing divine attributes as if to say, if I get this thing that I pursue, it will ultimately satisfy. And it never does. Here's the problem. We're more like Amnon than we may realize. Because we have a crafty friend. And his name is not Jonadab, but his name is Satan. And we find ourselves regularly being tempted to put our hope in good things. And here's where I want you to listen. And here's where I want you to, to begin to listen, not just to me, but to the Spirit. Because we, our hearts are constantly seeking. Our hearts are like a radar. They're constantly seeking for something to worship. And if we are not active in pursuing the worship of a God, our hearts will like a beacon. They will lock on to something. And here's where it gets tricky. Oftentimes our hearts will lock on to very good things. Things like our children. And we will begin to worship our children. And to believe that if we put our hope in their academics... Or if we put our hope in their sports. Or if we put our hope in their success. Whatever, what that might look like that we didn't have. Then all of a sudden our life will be happy. And it will work out. And our life will be glorious. And our kids are a very good thing. Some of us, it's so easy for us to put our hope in our work. And to say, if I get enough done. If I get to this point in my career. If I can reach a point of success, whether that comes in how much money I make or how much acclaim I receive or the influence by which I have gained, then it will be enough to satisfy. Then I can say, life is enough and it's never enough. We can put our hope in our looks, in good things like our health. I go to the gym two times a day. If I can just... Not have the heart attack that my father had at 54. Or whatever it might be. We can put our hopes in so many different things. Maybe you hear this story today. And you're tempted to begin to build your identity on being a good parent. Because David was not. And you don't want to make the same mistake that David made. But here's the kicker. A life not centered on God leads to emptiness. Building our life on something other than God not only hurts when we don't get the desires of our heart, but hurts even more when we do. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says it this way. I've quoted this to you before. Few of us get all of our wildest dreams fulfilled in life, and therefore it's easy to live in the illusion that if you were successful, wealthy, popular, or beautiful as you wish, you'd finally be happy and at peace. That just isn't so. Cynthia Heimel wrote in a Village Voice column, uh, she thought back on all the people she knew in New York City before they became famous movie stars. She said one worked behind the makeup counter at Macy's, one worked selling tickets at movie theaters, and so on and on. When they became successful, every one of them became more angry, manic, unhappy. And unstable. 
More so than they had been when they were working hard to get to the top. You say, why? And she goes on and writes, and I think I have this quote for you. That giant thing they were striving for. That fame thing that was going to make everything okay. That was going to make their lives bearable. That was going to fill them with ha-ha happiness had happened. And the next day they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Idolatry promises to satisfy but leaves you empty and angry. Did you know that it's actually easier to face suffering than it is to face success? It's actually easier to face suffering because when we suffer, we're aware of our need and we're humble. Or we at least have the opportunity to be humble. But what's difficult, look at David's life, is when David faced success. And he faced success and he turned away from God. Now, here's what's hard. Look to the person at your left. Do it. Look to the person at your left. Look to the person at your right. Now, remember what you look like. Everybody that you just looked at is successful. Because you drove here this morning, or you have money for an Uber, or you had a friend who had a car. You've got a shirt on, and you've probably got at least a couple more in your closet at home. That makes you successful compared to most of the rest of the world. And so we, as followers of Jesus, must be careful that we pursue Him above all else, that we treasure Jesus, even over our kids, and even over our work, and even over all the good gifts that Jesus has given us. Most people think of sin primarily as breaking divine rules. That's what most of us grew up in Sunday school classes, we, I've told you this, we would joke around. I went to a small Southern Baptist church and we would joke around. I don't know who wrote the Sunday school curriculum at that time, but we would joke and say, what's the Sunday school lesson going to be about today? We know it's a story from the Bible, but what's it going to tell us at the end? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't have sex before you're married, don't uh, gamble. It's like, which of those four or five like major you know, umbrella sins is it? And so we were taught over time... That following Jesus is primarily about not doing things. Don't break the rules. But the Ten Commandments say that first and foremost we're to have no other gods before us. So the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things. The making of good things into ultimate things. Which is idolatry. Seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, your purpose, and your happiness than your relationship with God. And this is where this gets really hard and really difficult. Because think about the way you spend your time and think about your treasures and think about your talents and begin to measure those. Put them on a pie chart. And begin to think, where does... Like, where does my time flow? Especially my uninterrupted time. My time when it's not, like, time at work. Or time where I'm, like, you know, you got to change diapers. Uh, there, there's things that have to be done, right? But wh- where does the time in which you have margin in your life, where does your margin begin to flow? And then begin to look and see how much of your life 
Because we don't need to silo our life. Like all of life is lived in worship to Jesus, right? And so how much of my work life am I living in worship to Jesus and giving Jesus my work? So that I'm saying like, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm ready to go out the door every day. I got my little brown paper bag. I got my lunch packed. You know, I got my bag, whatever. And I'm going out as your missionary today. Getting paid by this company. It's, a, it's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. They're paying me to be a missionary for Jesus. You know, Jesus is running the biggest scam in all of history. If we're really followers of him, right? Not really a scam, but he says, go and be my disciples. Be on mission. We got somebody else paying us in order to be on mission for him. How incredible is that? Like, are you viewing your life in that way? In which Jesus is impacting the everyday stuff of your life? Are you viewing your kids as this incredible opportunity that God has given you to shepherd them in order that his kingdom would be revealed in a more glorious way? Or are you viewing your kids as your kingdom? Or their kingdom? Like, how are you using your treasures, your time, your talents? And then what aspects of your life, where are you meeting frustration? Where are you finding yourself being angry? Repetitively, constantly. Here's a question. It's just a guess. My guess is that there's some connection in our lives to what we're angry about and what we treasure. final part of this story ends and it's just, uh, we don't even have time to finish it. So I'm just going to read a few of the verses. I'm just going to read verses 20 through 22 and uh, we'll just wrap up with this. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. The third point that we see from this godless story is that passive fathers lead to rebellious children. Passive fathers, passive parents, but particularly passive fathers lead to rebellious children. In this story, we see that a passive father actually leads to seeing a kingdom destroyed in our day and time, we see how passive fathers break down a society. If you look at almost all of society's ills, almost all of them go back to passive fathers. And when I say passive, oftentimes not even there. Like some of you don't even know who your father was. That's how passive he was in your life. Didn't even stick around. Very hurtful. Now within that, what isn't told, if we don't finish the story, and you can read it on your own, is that it leads to Amnon's murder. Absalom, he concocts this big two years go by, and he just sits on that anger and lets it build. And he concocts this big story, and he goes to King David. You reap what you sow. He goes to King David, and he says, Hey, I want to shear my sheep, and I want to throw this big party. I want everybody to come out. And David says, Ah, oh, that's going to be too expensive. He says, Well, at least just let my brothers come out. And he says, ah, I don't know, that's going to be kind of a lot too. Let Amnon come. Okay, Amnon can come. And at the party, they have this agreement, and everyone turns on Amnon, and they murder him. 
I mean, it's been two years, and they're sitting on this quietly. And then Absalom can't come back to the kingdom, so he's forced to run away and to flee. And they were going to see a mess in which Absalom's going to come in in later chapters and try to take the kingdom over. Literally, he's going to divide the kingdom. All because of David's passivity. Because what do we learn about David in this story? In verse 22, all that we hear of David is this. But Absalom spoke to Amnon. I'm sorry, it's not verse 22. Uh, verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Great, David. Great, you're angry. Any justice? Any consequences? No, just pure passivity. Anger is a gift from God. It is one of the emotions that he has given us. Anger means I am passionate about something that I desire to pursue that needs to be pursued. Right? Like, there needs to be justice when wrongs have been done. That's why we have court systems. That's why we have policemen who go out and search for criminals. Why? Because justice must be done or there'd be a lawless society. So anger is a good thing. I'm passionate. I want to pursue it. But it's got to be directed in the right ways. Absalom's anger was not good. And David's anger just fizzled out. No justice. No taking the time to look at the consequences. Now, I want to end with this. I'm going to end with the problem of parenting. I just want to say, just like three minutes on parenting. Um, The problem with parenting is this. When your kids are like zero to five, you're so overwhelmed with trying to just like keep their diapers changed and keep them fed, is that you kind of think to yourself, when they get older and I'm not so overwhelmed, I'm going to start to parent them. And the problem with that is who they are at three is who they will be at 13. And that's just the facts. It's not a Christian belief. It's just the facts. Who they are at three is who they'll be at 13. And I wish I would have known that when my kids were younger. And then when they get to be 13, from 13 to 18, we go, whoo, they're finally kind of self-sustaining. You know, they can buckle their seatbelt in, they turn all the lights on in the house, they can kind of cook for themselves, and we're going, good grief, I'm ready for a break. And when we should be doubling down in terms of discipleship, particularly in life skills and in what it means to, to, for them to mature in Christ, we just kind of step away. Parenting is very difficult. Most people are passive parents. Even when they're actively in the room with their kids, got these things in front of our faces, or the kids got this in front of their face. And it, it is amazing. The, the, you would have to add up not just the minutes. You would have to add the seconds. Because you need every second. The few minutes and seconds we actually spend like eye to eye with our children. Without a screen or without like engaging on a daily basis. It's amazing how short it is. Now, one of the things I want to encourage you in is this. Uh, what does it look like to be an active parent? Well, um, very easily, the the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University reported that three meals a week around the table led to high-quality relationships with parents. Literally, family dinners were strongly linked to lower rates of teen substance abuse. Literally, if you don't want your kids to be addicted to drugs or alcohol then just have three or four meals a week around the table in which you say, 
We're going to turn the TV off. We're going to put our phone somewhere else. And we're going to engage with one another. Because there will be a sense created that your child is in relationship. There will be a sense that they matter. That they know one another. And that they are known. And that makes all the difference. At our home, while we sit around the table, oftentimes we'll do our high, our low, and what we're grateful for. So what was your high from today? What was your best experience from today? What was your low today? What was your worst experience? And then what am I grateful for? Just an easy way that we can be active parents. And by the way, this doesn't just have to be uh, something that you do with your kids. Maybe you uh, kids are out of the house. Maybe you don't have kids. Um, this is something that you can just do with roommates, it's something that you can do with your spouse, like just engaging with one another on a regular basis. We're not in front of media. The other thing I would encourage is build up your children. And I struggle with this. Don't overparent or smother them. Don't compare them to one another. If you would just be more like your brother, if you would just be more like your sister, don't do that. Don't exasperate them. But build them up. How rarely have you ever heard someone say, my mom never affirmed me? I, I meet with guys in counseling and have discipled guys for 20 years. I rarely have ever hear someone say, my mom didn't affirm me. How often do you hear people say, my dad didn't affirm me? It's so important. Yeah, there's always things that our kids need to be changing and working on. There's always things that we need to be changing and working on. But by God's grace, ask the Spirit of God to remind you to point out the things to them. Hey, I'm seeing progress in your life in this area. I'm seeing maturity in your life in this area. Hey, good job because of that. Our kids need that. They need those positive notes of feedback twice as much as they need criticism and critique. And I'll be the first to say that as someone... I'm an Enneagram 1, if you're familiar with the Enneagram profile at all. And I struggle with perfectionism, and I can easily walk into our house and say, why is this this way? Clean this up. What's wrong with you? Why would you leave that there? You're so lazy. And before I know it, my kids are laughing because it's sadly true. And it's something I have to constantly work on. And by God's grace, I'm seeing a little bit of growth in God reminding me. Encourage them. Build them up. Don't concentrate on what they didn't do. Point out what they did do. So when you get that report card, why is there a C here? Instead of starting with a C, hey, great job. Almost all A's and B's. Then maybe get to the C later. Finally, keep your promises and invest in them. It'll require you to sacrifice. Let me say this. If you're a parent, if parenting feels like pouring water in a bucket with a hole in the bottom, then you're doing it right. Because your kids, when they're little babies, all the way up to when they're in middle school, you're just pouring endless amounts of resources into a bucket that's got a big hole in the bottom, and they don't give a rip, and they, all, they, all they're good for is to give you a hard time a lot of the times. I'm not talking bad about kids. You were the same way, and I was too. It's just a, it's just a bucket with a hole in the bottom. But something begins to happen in high school. And you begin to see a shift in maturity. 
in which if you poured water in that bucket and continued to do it, even when it seemed like it was draining out, and even when they didn't care, and all the times you tried to teach them chores, and they just said, mm, he just, I don't want to do that, and oh, it's just, why are you always making us do this stuff? And they just always constantly just giving you a hard time, and you felt like they weren't good for anything but giving you a hard time. When they begin to mature, you will see that hole begin to close up. And you will see what the scriptures say. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And you will begin to see those kids begin to pour back into your life. It takes a long time. Remember that time I told my mom, thanks for the way that you raised. I was, I was real vulnerable one time on the phone. Probably says a lot about our family. But uh, I was like, it was a Mother's Day or something. Mom, thanks for the way that you invested in me. I remember you taught me like... The 23rd Psalm, when I was like two and a half, I'd memorize it and could say, that, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I, said, I could say the whole thing. I was like two and a half. I said, you did a great job. And she said, well, we'll see. <laughs> Thanks. I said, what do you mean? She said, we'll see how your kids turn out. I said, know what I did. And there's some truth to that. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of sacrifice. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Hey, how does this story end? Like, this is a terrible story. This is a terrible sermon, isn't it? I mean, we're left with, like, destruction, godlessness. And brought some good parenting tips out of it, maybe. Like, oh, he tried to rescue that thing, but it's still a horrible story. Where's the gospel at in this? We missed it. So Tamar brings it to us in the form of a question. I want to end with this. Tamar's the only character with a shred of character in this story. And in verse 13, we skipped over a question. She said, where could I carry my shame? Where could I carry my shame? And the answer is, nowhere. Except to a place called Calvary. Where Jesus bled and died. So that our shame could be erased. So that we could be made clean again. Tamar teaches us. That when everything in this world has been destroyed. I mean the words that are used here are like a nation that's been weighed. That's been just torn apart. That's the words that are used in the Hebrew of, of her story. When everything in our lives has been torn apart. Tamar reminds us. As she was covered in ashes, Jesus promises a crown of beauty instead of ashes in Isaiah 61. As Tamar left weeping with her robe torn, Jesus promises to bind up the brokenhearted and to clothe them with a garment of praise instead of despair. As we go to the communion table today, we're reminded that whatever your shame, whatever your disgrace, there is nothing too great to bring to Jesus. And not only is there nothing too great to bring to Jesus, but if we have a treasure in Jesus, then there's nothing else in this world that we need. Let's pray together.